It is a wonderful privilege to be studying something so important this morning. And I'm just talking about the Word of God in general. We're not studying mere men's words or some opinions by somebody. When we open our Bibles, we encounter the living God. Amazing, isn't it? We come face to face with His thoughts, with His intentions, with His will. And I would say there is nothing that you and I could devote our minds to that is more important or more profitable than to study the Word of God. It's what our minds are made to do, to ponder Him, to read His Word, to think on it, to meditate on it. Everything else is sand, shifting, changing. This is bedrock, solid, right? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word, the hymn says. I hope you view it that way. Um, I pray that the Lord is just in us all cultivating this hunger for the word of God in our hearts. As he just brings us one step at a time closer to maturity in Christ. So let's take this invaluable word and let's focus our minds and hearts on it for a little while. Turn to the book of Philippians if you're not already there. We've been going through the book of Philippians as many of you know. You've been here. Um, We've been going through it verse by verse, section by section sometimes for the past several months. And we're up to verse 5 of chapter 4. And this is, of course, getting near the end of Paul's letter to these Philippian Christians. And at the end here, he gives them kind of these these rapid-fire commands or exhortations or sometimes encouragements. And the one we looked at last time, found in verse 4, was this. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. And we examined two weeks ago, what that meant by trying to just highlight throughout the Bible the places in Scripture where the biblical writers rejoice in the Lord, specifically on God's salvation, rejoicing in God's salvation. And we said that when we think of the salvation that we have in God through Christ, it is quite a natural outcome to rejoice, right? In other words, joy in the heart makes total sense in the life of a person who realizes that God has taken his or her sins and tossed them into the deepest sea. On the other hand, it would be quite unnatural For a person to believe that all their sins have been washed away, cleansed through the blood of Christ, and yet not be joyful over it. That would be odd, to say the least. Something would be off there. That doesn't make sense. Joy is just the natural outflow of being right with God. 
And uh, I'll just say it at the risk of sounding overly simplistic, when we sense that we aren't joyful in the Lord, what we should do is this, dwell on what we have in Christ. That's it. That's the solution. Sounds simplistic, but it, the, the, the solution is simple. Just dwell for a while on the gospel. What has God done for us? What has he rescued us from? What condemnation is left for us to face? None. So just kind of re-gearing your mind, so to speak, helps a ton. And I don't know if you took me up on the suggestion or not two weeks ago to pray the prayer of the psalmist each morning from Psalm 90 verse 14. I don't know if you did this or not, but it may help us to do this. It says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. What if you prayed that every morning? Make that your prayer. Meditate on the truths of the gospel each morning and see what it does for your joy in the Lord. Amen. So moving on to verse 5 today. Just like last time, we're going to kind of focus in on one verse today. Let's read it. Philippians 4, verse 5 says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let me read it one more time. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Maybe your translation said, let your moderation be known to everyone. Or let your gentleness be known to everyone. And there's a good reason why the Bible translators translate this word a little differently in some versions. And that's actually what I want to talk about first today. Let's look at the richness of this word here translated in the ESV, translated reasonableness. So let's first look, number one, the richness of its meaning. So just to go really basic on you for a minute, the New Testament was written in Greek. I don't want to assume that everyone has equal knowledge about these things. So just to clarify, what Bible translators do is they go back to the Greek manuscripts that we have from way back. And we have a ton of them, by the way. That is a miracle of God's providence in itself that we have so many preserved for us. No ancient book even comes close to the amount of manuscript evidence as we have for the Bible. And it's, it's just amazing when you start looking into some of those things. But when you translate words, as you can imagine... I'm no translation expert, but this makes total sense that when you translate words from one language to another, sometimes you come across words that are so rich in meaning that it's hard to capture them with one word in this language that you're translating to. And that's sometimes why you get variation between different translations or versions of the Bible. Of course, it's not my intention to go through the whole method of an approach to translation. I'm simply just bringing this up now because we have one of those words 
right here in our verse today. Um, when I read it a minute ago, I read it in my translation of choice, which is the ESV, the English Standard Version, and it said, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. But that Greek word that's translated reasonableness is a word that you might say is pregnant with meaning. And that's according to virtually all the Greek scholars that I have read in preparation for this message. Here's the word. case, I believe is the proper pronunciation. That's not the Greek letters, of course. That's a transliteration, if you will. case. So let me give you some of the shades of meaning that this rich word carries with it that makes it seemingly impossible to translate with just one English word. And just so you know, I'm I'm laboring here just a little bit with you over this point because if this is going to be obeyed by us to let your reasonableness be known to everyone, well, then we better have a decent idea of what it is, right? Words mean things. So let's find out what this word means. Let's do a little mini word study here to start with. So here's what some of the Greek scholars say. Okay, you ready? One says, case suggests a forbearing, non-retaliatory spirit. Forbearing, you might say long-suffering and non-retaliatory. In other words, it doesn't seek to get payback. It absorbs wrongs. Another scholar says, the word here used expresses a state of mind opposed to the eagerness that overrates the worth of our personal objects and to the arrogance that insists on our own will about them. Some would render it considerateness. It is a temper which dictates a gentle and forbearing way of dealing with men. John Calvin was a theologian and scholar himself. He says this term means when we are not easily moved by injuries, when we are not easily annoyed by adversity, but retain equanimity of temper. He's talking about this even keel, self-controlled calmness of temper. It's not easily annoyed or dismayed when wronged, for instance. And I was especially interested with that phrase that he used an equanimity of temper. That just means this mental calmness, a composure, an evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. You may have also heard of the word magnanimous. Heard that word before? Many scholars include that word in the meaning of this pregnant Greek word. And magnanimous doesn't mean, as sometimes it's often misunderstood to mean big like that building is magnanimous that thing's huge sometimes we use it that way that's actually not what it means it means of a generous spirit generous in forgiveness magnanimous would be like the opposite of petty or resentful so 
already we're seeing, right, like this, this full-orbed definition of this word that's hard to capture in just one word. Here's what John MacArthur says about this word, and that print up there may be small to read. If it's too small for you to read, just listen. He says this, Epia case has a richer meaning than any single English word can convey. Hence, commentators and Bible versions vary widely in how they render it. Sweet reasonableness, generosity, goodwill, friendliness, magnanimity, charity toward the faults of others, mercy toward the failures of others, indulgence of the failures of others, leniency, big-heartedness, moderation, forbearance, and gentleness are some of the attempts to capture the rich meaning of Epie case. Perhaps the best corresponding English word is graciousness, the graciousness of humility, the humble graciousness that produces the patience to endure injustice, disgrace, and mistreatment without retaliation, bitterness, or vengeance, end quote. Interesting. He says the best corresponding English word is graciousness. The word is used five times in the New Testament, including this one in Philippians 4, and many times it's translated gentle. But as far as just the Greek usage of that word, it has a wider meaning than, than that in many cases as we just talked about. So, so today, as we're considering this verse, you might hear me say reasonableness, or you might hear me say graciousness, or you might hear me say gentleness, or forbearance, or some other word like that. But regardless, we're talking about this word, epia case, that we find in this verb, or in this verse. So maybe now that we just know something of the richness of that word. Let's move on to this. Number two, it's prominence in the Christian's life. Did you notice what he said about this reasonableness? He said, let your reasonableness be known to who? To everyone. Let it be known to all people. And of course, that doesn't mean you go around saying, hey, I'm a reasonable person. That's not how he means it, right? He means you demonstrate it. So apparently, it's God's revealed will for all Christians to be known by this trait. Apparently, this reasonableness, this gentleness, this graciousness is to be so prominent and overarching in the life of a Christian that it's just obvious to those around you that that's what you're like. That's how I would describe you. Now think of verses 4 and 5 together for a moment. If joy is the internal attitude of the Christian then reasonableness is the visible outworking of that attitude toward others. Does that make sense? Joy in our hearts leading to this graciousness to others. Now, 
maybe you've noticed along with me that that's quite a contrast to what is most common in our culture, isn't it? There is an extreme lack of reasonableness and gentleness and graciousness in our culture. And it's very easy for us in the social media climate, this time of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and cell phones and the internet, computers. It's easy for us to hide behind a keyboard or a phone screen. It's easy to become extremely unreasonable and harsh and discourteous and ungracious. Very easy to do that. Graciousness has pretty much gone extinct in our culture, mainstream culture. But this is what Christians are called to be here in Philippians 4 5. Reasonable, gentle, gracious. And just like joy is the natural outflow of fellowship with God, reasonableness or graciousness is the natural outflow of understanding God's grace to you. Of all people, right? Christians should be the most gracious. Why? Well, because we have been shown profound grace by God himself. We are people who profess to recognize that although we're deserving of hell because of our sin, God has forgiven us on the basis of what Christ has done on the cross. And when we come to him in faith, or when we came to him in faith, all of our sins were wiped clean. We were given a right standing with God. In other words, we were given something Not due to what we've done in ourselves, but out of the sheer grace of God. It was a gift to us. And so the point is, if God has shown his grace to us in that way, how could we not show grace to others? So Christians are to be reasonable people. Reasonable of temper. Gentle, not petty, gracious. And these things are just to be so characteristic of us that if people had to describe you and me in one word, how would you describe that person? They might say, if we're obeying this command, they might say, well, you said one word, okay. We don't agree on everything, but I can say this. That person is gracious and kind, and gentle, considerate of others, reasonable. May God help us to be that. And this is where, oh, this is where some self-awareness has to come in, right? How do you think you come across to other people? Sometimes in our minds, you may may be thinking, I'm coming across one way. And if you step back and kind of look outside yourself, so to speak, and just put yourself in that person's shoes, think about how you may come across to people. Would they describe you in this way? We've probably all known a person, or maybe we've been this person at some point. 
all known a person that has zero self-awareness. They just don't know how they're coming across to other people, right? They just didn't seem to understand or even think about how they're being received by others. We need to have some self-awareness about ourselves when it comes to things like this. Do we come across as gracious, as reasonable of temper, or do we come across as ungracious or harsh? Strive to be reasonable and gracious. Ask God to help you here. May God help all of us Christians to be characterized by this. That is point number two here, that it is something that we should show to everyone. And that's easier said than done, isn't it? You say, everyone, oh. It's easy to be gracious when others are gracious back, right? Or when they're gracious first. We can say, oh, I'll be gracious to them, of course. That's easy, right? When it gets tough is when people treat you rough. When they disrespect you, right? You know, Christians are called to be servants of others. We're called to love and serve for the glory of God. And someone says, everyone wants to be a servant until they're treated like one. That's when it gets real, right? That's when the rubber meets the road. How gentle, how gracious, how slow to anger, how reasonable of spirit will you and I be when we're mistreated? So the phrase, to everyone or to all men, includes those who mistreat us or malign us. Christians are supposed to be non-retaliatory people. We don't retaliate. We don't seek to get even. And we talked about that last week during the communion message that Jesus exemplified this to the T, didn't he? When he was reviled. What did he do? Did he lash back out? When he was mocked, did he mock in return? No. 1 Peter 2, 23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So if you need somebody to model your reasonableness after, your non-retaliatory spirit, your graciousness, even against horrible mocking and jeering and persecution, look no further than Jesus Christ. He is the epitome of this. Another passage that kind of puts that um, to everyone aspect into perspective is when Jesus was preaching his Sermon on the Mount. And he's talking about loving our enemies. Listen to him here, Matthew 5, 43 to 47. He says, You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same, he says. His point is that even the worst sinners find it pretty easy to love those who love them, right? Even pagans do that, he says. But what makes Christians supernaturally different is that they, like their master, love even their enemies. Those who persecute us, those who hate us, those who malign us or mistreat us. Now, does that mean never stick up for yourself? That's not what I'm saying. I think there may come a time when you have to defend yourself in some way. In fact, I think we have examples of that in Scripture. Like, for instance, when Paul was about to be flogged one time by the Romans, he didn't just quietly say nothing in a spirit of, do whatever you want to me because I'm a Christian and I just quietly submit to everything. That's not what he did. He asked the guard, Acts twenty two twenty five. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned, he said? They were about to do something illegal to Paul. And he voiced his concern very reasonably and calmly from what I can tell. But as far as what we're known for, we are to be like our Savior in his graciousness, his reasonableness of temper, his gentleness is long-suffering. And man, that is applicable to a host of different situations. Whether it's a disagreement in the church with another Christian over a non-primary doctrine, for instance, how reasonable can you be? How gentle, gracious can you be? Or whether it be in some other interpersonal matter like a friendship or a marriage or in your parenting, or in your workplace. And yes, even among those who might not like you very much for some reason, we ought to be still known for being gracious and gentle and reasonable people. May God help us to do so. How can we do this? What are some things that will help us strive to be this kind of people? We know it comes, first of all, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. But what actions can we take with the power of the Holy Spirit to cultivate this reasonableness? That's number three, cultivating this reasonableness. Let's just be as practical as we can here. How do we carry this out? And some of this I'm drawing, by the way, from a wonderful little book that you should get by John Crotts, C-R-O-T-T-S, called Graciousness. It's a wonderful book. You see it's short, very easy to read. Wonderful book. Get that book. I would highly recommend it to you. Here's a few ways that we can cultivate this, what he calls graciousness or reasonableness, gentleness, so forth. Here's some ways. First of all, just a basic one. Recognize that it is a command from God. That's just a basic first step, isn't it? We can tend to think of some things in Scripture if we're not careful as a piece of advice or a piece of counsel or a suggestion or a preference. We should not think of this as Christian extra credit. 
This isn't something that's optional for us. And I'm speaking to me. I need to grow in this area. I think we all do. But if we think about it this way as if it's some extra thing or it's just a piece of advice that will work well for you if you do this but really won't hurt you if you don't. If we think of it that way, we're going to make plenty of excuses as to why we don't need to implement this personally. This is a command from God. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What if someone is tempted to say, that's just not my personality to be gentle like that. I like to just say what I think. I tell it like it is. People admire me, I think, for that. And I know that's often portrayed as a virtue. But Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Part of being reasonable and gentle and gracious and having this equanimity of temper, as Calvin said, is being slow to speak your mind. Not saying everything that might pop in your head. Not assuming that the first thing I think of is going to be the best thing to say in that moment. It means listening well, right? Keeping a guard at the gate of your mouth. Like the psalmist said, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 141.3. And we'd have to add, in our 21st century, social media, phone-heavy culture, set a guard over my fingers, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my keyboard. So that I don't share or type something that would be ungracious or unreasonable. We ought to run our social media ideas through biblical principles, shouldn't we? Is what I'm about to say true, first of all? Like, for sure true, not allegedly true. And then, is what I'm about to share Intended to build people up or tear them down? What's my motive here? Am I being gracious or is this harsh? Is this reasonable what I'm about to say? Is this the type of thing I want to be known for on social media? Is this an issue that I want to associate myself with? Those things are some good things to think about too. Put that door, put that guard in, your, in front of your mouth and put the guard in front of your keyboard and your fingers. And maybe you're the type of person who maybe wisely stays off social media. That's okay, that may be good. <laughs> but these same things would apply to you as well in, in your real life interactions, your words, your actions is what I'm about to say or do. Does it demonstrate graciousness, gentleness, or does it have a spirit of harshness or pettiness or anger, hypercritical or something, or something along those lines? So there's maybe the first thing to remember. In order to cultivate this, realize that this isn't a suggestion or a personality thing. This is a command from God. Now, how else do we cultivate this trait? 
B, repent. (laughs) Repent of harshness. This just follows naturally. Once you evaluate yourself against the command of God, chances are we're going to see some discrepancies between the command and what we actually do, right? We all have been harsh with someone. We've all been ungracious in word and deed at points. We've lacked gentleness. But God's people are a repenting people. And God is a forgiving God. Praise God for that. When we're faced with the reality that we've sinned against God, we confess it and we forsake it. And we ask God to help us conquer this sin by His Spirit. So, as soon as you find yourself not being reasonable, not being gentle, not being gracious, repent as soon as you realize it. Make it right with the person that you're harsh with as well. What a testimony that is, by the way. Have you ever had somebody do that? They were harsh with you. They said something they shouldn't have said to you. And unprompted by you, they came and said, That was wrong. I was wrong. Please forgive me. It's so refreshing when somebody can do that. And it's so refreshing when we do it to others. It should be a, a common thing. Unfortunately, it's not. Nobody wants to admit when they're wrong, right? It's hard. But it is so refreshing when someone can say, I, I said this before. I acted this way before. But I, I was wrong. And I apologize. And that's not how my Savior treats me. And that's not how I want to treat you. Please forgive me. What a testimony that is. So points A and B were kind of sort of precursors to cultivating reasonableness. Realize that it's a command and repent of not having obeyed it. That's just the first steps, okay? Then what? How do we move forward in cultivating this? Here's a way. Discover... And appreciate God's graciousness to us. God has been so gracious to us, hasn't he? How in the world could we justify being ungracious with others? We of all people, as I said earlier, should understand something of grace. We of all people should cherish grace. Here's the Christian situation again, just summed up briefly. God, in His grace, looks upon me, a sinner, as being totally righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not mine, or lack thereof in here. I have wronged Him innumerable times, and He keeps on being patient with me and forgiving me. Over and over. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How hypocritical it would be for me to receive this lavish grace from God and yet not show it to others. That makes no sense for us to do that, does it? How can I do that? How can I be petty about minor matters when God has taken something as serious as my sin is against him and dealt with it by his amazing grace and abundant pardon. Isn't it amazing how God deals with us in grace? 
We tried to sing some songs this morning about his grace. What a wonder grace is. And another thing about our Savior is he is gentle with us. Gentle. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. We have a Savior who is gentle. And if we're going to be like him, we must be gentle. And then in Matthew eleven twenty nine, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, Jesus says of himself, and these words bring me such comfort that sometimes I shed tears over it. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's who he is. He's gentle with us. And that's what we're called to be. There's a Scottish theologian, I may have mentioned him before, his name is Robert Rainey. He says this trait that we're talking about today is the very evidence that you're a Christian. Think about that. He says this reasonableness, this graciousness is the evidence that Christ lives in you. He says, or he adds to it, Christ seen, felt, and rejoiced in is the secret of this moderation, he calls it. So, if we are to cultivate this graciousness, this reasonableness, and be like Christ in that way, we need to discover, we need to discover and appreciate afresh the wonderful grace of Jesus. Here's another way, another thing to remember to cultivate reasonableness, graciousness. Remember God's sovereignty. You say, how in the world does God's sovereignty play into cultivating graciousness or reasonableness? Well, here's how it works most times. When we become ungracious with people or impatient with people or harsh with people, many times it comes from a mindset that thinks we have to change the person. It starts off like this. All I need to do is say the correct things, the correct wording, and they'll get it. They'll get it. And then when they don't get it, well, it's just I just need to take it up a notch then, say it a little more forcibly. And then when they still don't get it, well, maybe I need to get downright stern so they'll get it. Maybe that's the only way they're going to learn, we think. And we get frustrated and we become ungracious and impatient. But when we do that, we're actually trying to accomplish something that only God can accomplish. We can't change people's hearts. God does that, right? He is the sovereign Lord over the hearts of men, not us. We don't need to get harsh or stern with people for God to change their heart. We don't need to become ungracious or impatient because we realize it's God doing the heart change, not me or my words or my demeanor. They're not going to snap to because I get harsh with them. 
He expects us just to give his truth in love, displaying this wonderful trait that we've been talking about today, and just let him do the heart transformation. We're free to be patient with people. Isn't that great? We're free. Let him handle that part. Takes a lot of the pressure off us, doesn't it? In all of this, thinking about God's sovereignty over all things, really, but even in this, it has this humbling effect on us. John Piper has this famous quote that goes like this God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. <laughs> So when you're tempted to become ungracious with someone, remember God is at work, even in that situation. God is at work. Pride, thinking that I'm in charge here. I need to do something. I need to say the right things, be the right level of stern. Pride's going to fuel the harshness, but humility is just... Realizing that God is the sovereign one, not you or I. And that's, that humility is going to cultivate this that we're talking about. This reasonable character, this reasonable temper, this graciousness. There's a letter E, the next one. And I don't know if I made a slide for it. I just realized I may have a mistake there. But you can write it down if you need to. E is... Think before you speak. At one point in the book here on graciousness that I mentioned earlier, the author's wife, he tells a story about his wife coming to him and just saying this so simple and yet profound statement. She said, you know, if I would just think about what I want to say before I say it, I would sin less. How simple and yet profound at the same time, right? Much of our sin comes out right through here, through our words. Much of our harshness and pettiness and lack of gentleness comes out in our words. That's what Jesus said, by the way. It's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Here's like the spout of your heart right here. Luke 6, 45. What's in here, in the heart, is going to eventually come out in the words. So one way to train ourselves in godliness is to do what that psalmist said that I quoted earlier, Psalm 141, 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. What actually needs to be said? Is it the right time to say this? Will it honor God to say this? I won't bring them up on the screen here, but Proverbs has a lot to say about the wise use of words. Listen to three. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 17, 27 says... Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. One more, uh, Proverbs 29, 20. 
Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Since there is this pipeline from our fallen heart to our fallen mouth, we need to take precautions and just stopping to think before we speak will allow us a much better chance to be gracious and gentle. There's so many more we could talk about today. Uh, I'll end it with one more. This is F. I think I forgot that slide too. I apologize. Realize that everything communicates. Everything communicates. Body language, tone of voice, volume, overall attitude, your face. All those things affect how a person interprets what we're saying. And just assuming for a moment that we're speaking truth and not some untruth, assuming that we're speaking truth, all of those things, the tone, the, all of what I just mentioned, it's either going to adorn the truth or detract from the truth. We're told in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Just by that verse alone, how we speak the truth matters to God. And with communication, it's not just your word choice. It's everything, your entire demeanor, your attitude as, as we communicate. It has a profound impact on the person who's receiving that communication from us. And I think of this amazing passage in 2 Corinthians 5. We're told there that God is making his appeal to the world through us. Listen to it. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So think of yourself as God's mouthpiece to a fallen world. How would he say this truth? How would Christ say it? God cares how we communicate his message. We ought to communicate in Christ-like ways. And just the overall tenor of our communication should be what we've been talking about today. With grace, with reasonableness, with Gentleness, humility. You know, sometimes in an effort to emphasize doctrine, which is a good thing, in an effort, though, to elevate doctrinal clarity and fidelity and truthfulness, in that effort, sometimes we tend to believe that as long as we're communicating something that's true, it doesn't really matter how we communicate it. Just the very act of me sharing the truth is an act of love, we think. But that's not exactly what Scripture teaches. It is loving to share the truth with people, even when we have to share tough or offensive truths from Scripture, but how we do it also matters to God. And this is just one verse. This isn't everything the Bible says on this 
topic today, but this is one indication of how God expects us to communicate. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And again, when you hear that word, think graciousness, gentleness, even temper, absorbing wrongs, patient, and so forth. There's a chapter in the Bible that we call the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, right? It talks about something very pertinent to this issue. I'll pull it up on the screen here. Listen to what it says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. That's what he says. Those verses are kind of a wake-up call, aren't they? We can think that we're doing something very spiritual and very godly. But if we lack love, we're nothing. We gain nothing. Not only that, we actually do harm. We're like the noisy gong, the clanging cymbal. I played percussion through high school and college. I think we have a percussionist here today, maybe a few. We know a thing or two about playing cymbals, right? And there's a technique to it, believe it or not. We don't just, you know, there's a technique. Like, for instance, if the music is coming to a crescendo or a climax, a well-played suspended cymbal roll and this swell with some soft mallets maybe. It really enhances the feeling and the impact of the music. But if you just take a stick and you just bang around on a cymbal and just try to make some noise with it, it can be one of the harshest and most annoying sounds you will ever hear. Right, band parents? <laughs> but God says when we speak and, and, and do things without love, we might say without graciousness, without this sweet reasonableness and gentleness that befits Christian communication, we're like somebody just banging around on a cymbal. People don't want to hear it. So may we always adorn the truth that God has called us to bear witness to with this reasonableness. Gentleness, graciousness, love. We're about to close here. But let me just bring in that last phrase that we haven't talked much about this morning. In verse 5, it says near the end of the verse, The Lord is at hand. How is he at hand? Does that mean that he's near to us spatially? As if to mean he's present with us? Or does it mean the Lord's coming is drawing near? I think it's both. The Lord is near to us. He's with us. His spirit is with us. 
Therefore, we can be gracious with people. And the Lord's coming is also drawing near so we can be content and joyful and reasonable in our dealings with people because he's going to come and take care of everything that we can't fix. Don't worry about fixing everything. He's going to fix everything. And that's a great encouragement and motivation to just be reasonable with people. Be gentle. Be patient. Don't worry. The Lord's at hand. Let's close by reading this passage. It talks about, I'll tell you the passage in just a minute. This passage talks about some marks of the true Christian. We've been looking at this rich word today, reasonableness, which just seems to encapsulate so many Christian virtues into one pregnant word. And this passage that we'll close with seems to just bring a lot of those together. So turn to Romans chapter 12. And we'll close with this. Romans 12 verses 9 to 21. It says this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In that passage, he seems to be in many ways just expanding on what he said here in verse 5. So let your reasonableness be known to everyone, Christian. The Lord is at hand. And let me say one more thing. This message was for Christians today. But perhaps you're here or you're... Perhaps you're here and not a Christian. Or perhaps you're a a non-Christian listening to this message online or at a later date. My word to you is look to Christ and live. Christ bids you to come to him in faith and be forgiven of all your sin. It's like coming out of darkness into his marvelous light. Repent of your sin and believe on him today. He will have you. He will not turn you away. 
And perhaps you've known people who claim to be Christians and they did not display the thing that we looked at today. They were not gracious. The Christians you knew were not gentle. They were harsh. I would just say, by way of encouragement, that is not how Jesus is. We Christians are imperfect pictures of what Christ is like, right? We're called to be Christ-like, but he makes us that way in degrees, not all at once. We're works in progress. Don't look to us. Look to Christ. Christians going to fail you. Christ never will. The church isn't the place where perfect people come. It's where needy sinners come to worship this gracious God who saved us. We just invite you to come to Christ today. I implore you, actually, on behalf of God himself, be reconciled to God through Christ. And I'm always free to talk if you have any questions. Let's pray together, brothers and sisters. Father, you have set the bar high. You have called us to be a holy people. And we fail constantly. But give us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, the ability to obey what this verse has commanded us to do. Help us to be reasonable, gentle, gracious people. May we just exude these things. May we be known for these things. May this not be something we occasionally do when we feel good or something like that, but something that actually characterizes us all the time, even in tough circumstances. It will only happen, Lord, by the power of your Spirit working in us. Make us that people who you call us to be. And I pray this, Lord, in confidence, because you made it clear in your word that that is what you intend to do in us. All those who you justify, you sanctify. The grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ is not just a saving grace in the sense that it forgives us, but it also changes us at the heart and life level. Conform us, Lord, to your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.